Welcome to this presentation of First Baptist Church Logue. We're glad to have you joining us today. Our mission at FBC Logue is to bring glory to God by being disciple makers. For that purpose, we present the following resource that it may be a blessing. All right, we'll grab a Bible and turn to Genesis chapter 8. Genesis chapter 8, and in case you use one of our pew Bibles, you'll find that on page 6. As we make our way through the book of Genesis, we're now in the third week of the story of Noah's Ark, and we have seen that from the time of Adam and Eve's sin... In the Garden of Eden, sin continued to spread throughout the human population. And over time, the Lord saw that the earth was filled with wickedness, corruption, and violence. And so God determined to execute judgment and destroy everything on earth with a great flood. But one man named Noah found favor with God. He received grace. And the Lord promised to establish a covenant with Noah and told him to build a giant ark so that he and his family and representatives of the animal kingdom could survive the flood and start things over again. And when the ark was ready, the Lord told Noah to load his family and everything else up. And then he brought a cataclysmic flood with water from below and above the earth, completely destroying everything on the earth, everything except for Noah and, and those that were with him on the ark. Now this morning, the Lord is going to bring Noah, his family, and the animals out of the ark and into a new creation. And so we're in Genesis chapter 8, and we're going to pick up beginning in verse 1. It says, But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained, and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. At the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him anymore. So after the flood came last week, chapter 7 ended by telling us that waters prevailed over the earth for 150 days. Let's talk about that for a moment. We know that the Lord warned Noah that it was going to rain for 40 days and 40 nights, but we didn't see anything about 150 days in the ark. 
Now, I've never been on an ark full of animals for 150 days, but I have been trapped in a vehicle with my family for several hours <laughs> on a road trip. And so as you think about these circumstances, you have to believe that Noah had a few moments here and there. Right? Like if that elephant trumpets one more time, I'm just going to jump, and I don't even care. I'm getting out of this boat. And then as soon as, as that thought goes through his mind, he hears someone yell from the back of the ship, Dad, the skunk sprayed again. Right? And it just gets worse and worse. So Noah survived the flood, but now he has to survive surviving the flood until the waters uh, drain off of the earth. Fortunately, as we move into chapter 8, it says that the Lord remembered Noah. And as we've seen before, the, the expression God remembered something is not intended to imply that he forgot at some point in the sense of, of temporarily losing conscious thought about something. You know, as if God is up in heaven saying, I had something to do today and I can't remember what it was. What was it? Oh, Noah, that's right. No, God is, is omniscient. He always knows everything. And, and so we understand that, that the Bible uses the phrase to remember uh, in a way that, that communicates acting on behalf of someone or for their benefit. And so at the end of verse 1, the Lord makes a wind blow over the earth that causes the waters to begin subsiding. So we see that the fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens are closed and, and so that water is no longer coming from them, and the water recedes continually, something like a bathtub draining slowly, for another 150 days. And by now, I'm sure Noah's thinking, this is exactly how Gilligan's Island started. It was only supposed to be a three-hour tour, and then look what happened. And God said 40 days and 40 nights, and here we are on day 300. Fortunately... Uh, on the 17th day of the seventh month, the ark comes to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And so the bottom of the ark, which would still be underwater, finally touches land uh, in, on an area that would still be shallowly covered by water. Now, the mountains of Ararat are the first location given in the Bible uh, that we know about. We don't know where the Garden of Eden was or where the land of Nod was, uh, but the, the mountains of Ararat we know about. These mountains are on the border between what is today Turkey and Armenia. And so if you look at the map on the screen, uh, they are represented approximately by the little red line that I have drawn there on my computer. Uh, now, oftentimes, people assume that the ark landed on the Mount of Ararat, specifically, but the text just references the mountain range as a whole, so somewhere in that general area. And, of course, people have searched for thousands of years to try to find the ark, and many of those efforts have uh, come up empty. Uh, some claims of finding the ark have been found out to be hoaxes, uh, but nothing definitive has ever been found, and, and frankly, all these thousands of years later, I'm not sure that there's anything of the ark left to be found. Uh, but at any rate, in verse 5, we see that on the first day of the 10th month, the tops of the mountains are finally visible. Then after another 40 days, Noah can't stand it anymore. He has to know what's going on out there, so he takes a raven and he releases it out of the ark. 
uh, I'm sure the raven is tired of being on this boat. And so the idea is that if this raven can find anywhere, anywhere at all to land, it would be preferable than being on this boat. And so if it doesn't come back, Noah will know that they're almost ready to get off. Uh, Unfortunately, the raven just goes to and fro. It, It circles around and doesn't give Noah any conclusive evidence. And so next, he releases a dove, which is a bird that will either stay gone or come back. But the dove doesn't find any land, and so it returns to the ark. And so Noah waits another seven days, and then he sends the dove out again. And the dove comes back again, but this time it has a fresh olive leaf, which means that while the water is is still there, at least in some areas, vegetation is starting to regrow. And so Noah waits another seven days and releases the dove again, and this time it doesn't come back. It is found somewhere that it can live. And so Noah realizes that it's getting close and the earth is going to finish drying and be ready for new inhabitants as we pick up again in verse 13. It says, In the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife, and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out, and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, Everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. And so as we pick up here in verse 13, we fast forward to the first day of the first month of Noah's 601st year, and we see that the waters have dried off the earth. And so the water is all gone at this point, but but the ground itself would still be a saturated mud bog at this point. And so it's still not quite ready. Uh, Noah removes the covering off of the ark to look around, and for the first time in a really long time, he sees the ground. And then in verse 14, almost two months later, the earth has finally dried out and is ready. And so God tells Noah to come out of the ark along with all of his family and all the different kinds of animals so that they can begin repopulating the earth. Now, last week, we saw that the flood started on the 17th day of the second month of the 600th year of Noah's life. And here, we see that God calls Noah to get off the ark on the 27th day of the second month of the 601st year of his life. And so after a full year of being on this ark, Noah and his family finally step out onto dry land. And you have to imagine that this would have been a a solemn eerie moment, right? It's, it's empty. It's quiet. Nothing is the same as it was before they got on the boat. But at the same time, it's, it's full of potential for the new life that they're going to begin together. Now, before we continue, I want to zoom out for just a moment because I think it's important for us to understand that, that what Moses has described uh, in the flood is a divine act of decreation, A divine act of decreation. Almost everything that God did in creation, he has undone through the process of this flood. And so we've seen that humans and animals have been destroyed. 
and vegetation and dry land have been covered as the waters above and the waters below that the Lord had separated originally come back together again. Right? We saw that in the beginning, the earth was one big ball of water. And now through the flood, the, the, the earth had become once again a big ball of water. But now chapter 8 has described God's work of recreation. And so all the way back in chapter 1, we saw that the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And the word for spirit can also be translated as wind. And so here in verse uh, 1 of chapter 8, we see that the Lord causes a wind, the same word, to blow over the waters. And this wordplay serves to connect what God did back in Genesis chapter 1 with what he's doing here. Next, God has caused the dry land to reappear and vegetation to regrow. And, and now, as he brings out Noah and all of the animals from the ark, he places living creatures on the earth once again. And so this is a new beginning, a fresh start. And we'll see how things progress as we pick up again in verse 20. It says, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, Summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. And so picking up in verse 20, Noah builds an, an altar, a structure that is designed for, for making sacrifices in worship. And he takes some of the clean animals and some of the clean birds and he offers them up to the Lord. And so I mentioned last week that I, I thought that the extra pairs of clean animals, seven pairs of all the clean animals and clean birds, had a sacrificial purpose, that, that he was going to use those for sacrifices. And here, uh, he does that. He takes the extras and makes burnt offerings while still having one pair to, to live and repopulate the earth. And so all, all joking about having to live on the ark for over a year aside, Noah is profoundly grateful for the salvation that he has been granted. And so he offers the Lord a sacrifice of, of thanksgiving. And in verse 21, the Lord smells the pleasing aroma of the sacrifice, and he determines that this is a turning point. And he says, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And so the Lord determines never to execute judgment in this particular way ever again. Now, as a quick aside, over the last couple of weeks, we've tackled some of the major objections or debates that surround this whole story. And one final issue that we can touch on just briefly is whether or not this was truly a global flood or just a regional flood. There are a number of people who insist that this was not truly a global flood. That would be impossible. But instead, this was just a regional flood uh, that, that appeared to be global because there was water as far as Noah could see. And so I want to take just a moment to give four reasons why I think we should understand this as a global flood. 
Uh, first of all, while this certainly could have been a regional flood that seemed to be global from, from Noah's limited perspective, that would not be the case for God. Right? God knows exactly what this was. And so inasmuch as we believe that the scriptures are inspired by the Holy Spirit, if the text says that it was a global flood, then we should understand it that way. Secondly, uh, if this was only a regional flood, then the ark would seem to be much ado about nothing. Right? If, if God is concerned that humanity and, and the animals survive a limited judgment, then all God would have had to do was tell Noah and his family to, to move. Like, like, go over there because I'm about to flood this particular region of the earth. But all of the time and the effort involved in building the ark only makes sense if the ark is the only option for survival because this is, in fact, a global flood. There's going to be nowhere to go, as, in fact, we saw was the case. Third, just a simple physical observation, water disperses, right? It, it spreads out evenly over a surface, so if I poured out my water bottle here on the stage, it wouldn't just stack straight up, it would disperse as far as it could go across the stage. And in a similar way, uh, unless the, the inhabited world at this point was, was bowl-shaped, which we have no reason to think that it was, then, then all of this water that we read about last week isn't going to stay local. It's going to disperse out as far as there is space, which would, be, it would include the rest of the earth. And then finally, and perhaps most importantly, what the Lord says right here indicates that this was a global flood because he determines never to do it again. And certainly throughout history, there have been many instances of, of devastating local and regional floods. We know a thing or two about that ourselves. Right, but the earth as a whole has never flooded in this way again. And so for God's word to stand true, it would seem to require that what we have here was in fact a global flood. So that's my take on that. But getting back to the story itself, there's one last thing for us to note here in the middle of verse 21. The Lord determines never to repeat this judgment despite the fact that the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. So you'll remember from back in chapter 6 that the Lord saw that every intention of a man's heart was only evil continually. And here in chapter 8, what we find is that that hasn't changed. That, that, it, the Lord indicates this is still the case. And so we've already established that Noah was not a perfect man. Uh, we're going to see that even more next week. But even here, the Lord reveals that the flood hasn't actually fixed the problem of human sin. Right? The flood can, uh, can do a lot of things, but it, it can't fix that. Nevertheless, the Lord will not execute judgment against mankind in this same way again. And so we'll see what happens next when we come back again next week for chapter 9. And so in our passage this morning, the Lord remembers Noah. And he brings Noah and his family and the animals out of the ark and into a new creation. Right? This is a clean slate. This is a fresh start. And yet, we already have an ominous hint that not everything is as it should be. Something is still wrong. Right? The flood can, it can cleanse the earth from the impact of human sin, but it can't change the nature of human sinfulness itself. And so as humans go on to repopulate the earth, it's only going to be a matter of time before the same wickedness, corruption, and violence come to characterize the world once again. 
And in this way, that the, the whole flood story gives us a, a great picture of the problem of humanity and, and the, the futility of trying to solve it ourselves. You know, most people look at the, the problems in our society and they think that, that we can fix them if we just get the right laws or the right policies in place or if we just educate people enough or, or if we can get people the right emotional and psychological support that they need. And I certainly don't want to come across as, as if I'm knocking any of those things because all of those things can be helpful uh, in as far as they go. But, but we need to be very clear and understand that you can never solve a spiritual problem with earthly solutions. You will never be able to solve what is a spiritual problem with earthly solutions. You see, all these efforts assume that people are generally good. And if you can just help them out a little bit, then they'll, they'll get over the hump and everything can be made okay. But the reality is that you can put us in whatever environment you want to put us in. You can, you can pass all of the laws and legislation that you want to. You can give us as much education as you want. We could all have PhDs. But at the end of the day, we are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. The problem is not out there. The problem is right here. And as long as, as that foundational problem is not solved, all of our human solutions are just like trying to put a Band-Aid on a cancer spot. Right? What we need are heart changes. Right? The natural rebellion of our hearts, our, our inherent sinfulness and the spiritual death that came as a result of Adam and Eve's sin needs to be overcome. And it needs to be replaced with new spiritual life. And it's going to take the, the whole biblical storyline to work this out. But the good news is that this is exactly what the Lord offers his people. You see, when you get into the, the Old Testament prophets, when Israel's hard-heartedness has, has reached its peak, the Lord promises that one day he will eventually change the hearts of his people. And so in Ezekiel 36, the Lord promises, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. In Jeremiah 31, the Lord says that he will put his law within his people and write it on their hearts. God promises that eventually he will provide the one thing that can actually change us into the people that he has created us to be. Now, of course, if you've been at Loeb for any time at all, then I assume that you already know that these promises ultimately come to pass through Jesus. As, as Jesus pays the penalty for our sin on the cross and provides us with the Holy Spirit who regenerates our hearts. And so in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul can say, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All right, the one thing that we need is the one thing that God provides for us in Christ. And this is another reason why the faith and the practice of the church must always be grounded in the gospel. Right? We are not political activists. We are not uh, 
we're not pop psychologists. The one thing that we have to offer the world is the good news of Jesus Christ and what he has done to save us through his life, death, and resurrection. Now, of course, our salvation doesn't mean that we're ever perfect in this life, but it does mean that we we become able to live our lives gradually in ways uh, of obedience that, that, that cause us to grow more and more like Jesus in our attitudes and actions. And this is exactly what we are expected to do as believers. Just as Noah offered sacrifices to the Lord for the salvation that he experienced here in chapter 8, in, in Romans chapter 12, Paul says to us, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of our mind. You see, we glorify God as we live out the newness of life that he has given us through Jesus. And as we saw recently in 1 Peter, the difference that people see in us should make the gospel message compelling to them. And so we pursue obedience to the Lord as we live this life in hope of the ultimate new creation that the Lord will provide on the last day, where we will live in perfect fellowship with him forever. The the story of Noah's ark lays this foundation that is worked out across the rest of Scripture. And so this morning, let's worship the God who grants us salvation through judgment and who makes all things new, including us, and then let's live our lives for his glory. Let's pray together. Father, as always, we thank you for your word. And as we cover the the resolution to to Noah's Ark. Lord, we thank you for the fact that you do make things new. And that, Father, uh, what the flood was not capable of doing, you have done for us through Jesus. You offer us new hearts, hearts that beat for you, hearts that respond to your spirit. And Lord, as, as we have read the story this morning, I pray that your spirit would cause your word to take root in our hearts and to bear the fruit that you have designed it to bear. Uh, Lord, I pray that as we take time to respond this morning, uh, you would just stir our hearts with a fresh appreciation for what you've done for us, with a, with a fresh desire to live out the newness of life that is ours in Christ, so that we can point uh, the people around us to the hope that is only found in Jesus. And so, Father, we, we ask your, uh, your leading as we respond now, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.